I was pretty sure I was going to lose all my clients. And it was scary because I had to tell people no, and I had to be okay with them saying, well, I can't afford you anymore. But I also knew that I had to do it because this was my only way to be that mom. Otherwise, I had to go get a job. But I was going to do everything I could to make this work and figure it out. I felt like a fraud. This is Finding Founders. I'm Samuel Donner, and that was Sarah Petty remembering a turning point in her photography business. Though motherhood itself carries more than enough challenge, somehow Sarah has pushed this limit by pursuing photography, a tumultuous endeavor that has culminated in a ranking as one of the most profitable photographers in the country and led her to found her own educational company, The Joy of Marketing. Sarah has shown us that motherhood doesn't limit a woman's potential to achieve entrepreneurial success. In fact, I think what seems to inform and motivate Sarah as an entrepreneur are the responsibilities of motherhood. In many ways, Sarah's entrepreneurial journey and motherhood have taught similar lessons, but her initial introduction to lessons of resilience and grit came in childhood from her father. My dad was an entrepreneur. He also taught college for like 30 years, a little bit of business, but mostly auto tech and also ran a business. He started fixing cars. So I, I watched him work hard, right? He had two whole careers. I think it just taught me how hard entrepreneurs work. So I remember my dad bought a house, a little bitty house, and we would walk down there and he was fixing it up. It was all work. It was you know, painting the house and always hands on. And then in the summers, as I got older, I, was, I would go down there and file. I painted the building. I was lot girl. I think that sort of developed who I was as a young person, but I had a great childhood. When I was in uh, late high school, or actually, yeah, late high school, my dad, there, the gas station moved out and he sort of inherited it. I watched a bunch of things happen from stealing employees. You, you're stealing food? Well, how could you? I, I thought you were my friend. I trusted you. To Get getting robbed. I mean, I watched it happen to him, right? And the police got called. 911, what is your emergency? It, it just formed who I was. And did you see all this world and were like, oh, I want a piece of that or? Actually, I thought the grass was greener. His desk was two file cabinets and a door. I, I thought that, you know, some fancy job at some big company would be better than watching him grow from nothing, right? Like with two file cabinets. And so it's always interesting until you're in that space, right? Sarah's first snapshot of entrepreneurship was watching her father fix cars in a tiny rundown house. She intuitively knew that there was more to life than hard work and struggle but there was something inspirational, maybe even endearing about seeing her father attack life with unwavering persistence. Even in the face of a robbery, instead of looking at it as a moment of defeat, it was viewed as a test of this perseverance. Perseverance granted, I think above all this, the gas station represented freedom. It presented financial and mental independence. It represented a fate determined by nothing other than their own willpower. This was a lesson that you would take to the judgmental waters of middle school. Well, considering the fact that I was six feet tall in like seventh grade, I definitely always stood out whether I wanted to or not. Six feet tall, like actually six feet tall? Yes. Oh my God. <laughs> actually six feet tall. Take a look at me. What am I? Uh... Really tall? So I was a sports kid, and so I wanted to play every sport. You know, I was obviously pretty good because I was giant. <laughs> so I would just hold the ball up. My basketball coach would say, Sarah, just don't bounce the ball. <laughs> so I ended up just kind of being that sports kid. So how did you feel that attention 
was on you and how did you like deal with it? Well, I think junior high is so hard, especially for girls, but I think for everybody. And I think everybody's sort of bullied for something. All my friends were like cute, little, adorable girls who like had all the boyfriends. And I always felt like I, I just, I was so much taller than all the boys, you know? But once you become good at sports, the guys become like your buddies. So it was a good experience, I feel like. Being a six foot tall middle schooler definitely makes you stand out. But Sarah used that attention to help her find a new passion, sports. In fact, she turned her most mockable quality into a strength. Using her height to her advantage, she flourished in sports and would carry that passion to a larger arena. College Volleyball. I was pretty underdeveloped, so, you know, going there, I was... I was so excited to play at a high level and I knew I could get better, but I knew I had a long way to go. And business has always been really easy for me. And so, I don't know, I I don't think that's the hardest degree ever. Like my friends who were in the sciences, medical, had a lot harder time. I didn't have to work very hard. (laughs) Like studying business, right? Like doing business is different than studying business. I was dabbling in art too, I love design. My senior year, so I had one last semester where I got an ad agency internship, but I also took a photography class. I had one elective and I just fell in love with it. It was in the dark room, it was black and white, and everybody was kind of scared of this professor. And we just sort of hit it off. And he said, tell me this is your major. And I was like, I'm graduating. (laughs) And so I realized, okay, I really like this. I had a teammate who loved photography also. So she and I would go downtown Memphis and there's some cool stuff in Memphis. The pyramid wasn't there, but there were all kinds of cool old areas and brick walls and different things. And so I remember going all out and then you would print your images and you would come to class and he would stick them all up on a pin board and he was just brutal critiquing them. Derivative. And people, I remember just being so upset. And I just remember wanting to learn. I'd never experienced this. So I don't know. I always kind of felt like that was a challenge. Okay, he's telling us what he wants, so let's go do it. And I just loved it. I remember going in the darkroom late at night, and my friend, my teammate, would go with me, and we would just power print. So I would expose it, and then she would take it through the trays, We just had so much fun. And so we come out after like two hours with like a stack of prints like this big. Sarah used criticism as motivation. She viewed obstacles as challenges. As an athlete, she understood the mental toughness required to achieve success at a high level. So she applied that same mentality to photography. But her stint in photography would be cut short by a more pressing matter. Graduation. Sarah loved photography, but at the same time, she felt it was impractical to pursue as a career. She was reminded of her father's struggles as an entrepreneur, and she knew she didn't want to be working in the back of a gas station with two dirty file cabinets. So she tabled her passions and opted for a more stable job at a well-known soft drink company. Yep, so I was at home. Every morning, my mom would come in. She's got the newspaper of ads. Anyway, she came in. It was like a Friday, and she's shaking the paper saying, Coca-Cola needs a marketing coordinator, I think was the title. So I literally walked my resume in, and... The person I was reporting to is a twist of fate, right? Had played pro football. So I'm right out of college. So we were just like sports talk. So we just completely hit it off and they offered me the job that day. What did you learn there? I learned a lot of things. So I think first and foremost, I learned the power of a brand. You never just pick a font and set Coca-Cola. And if you look at businesses, they they don't have any commitment to their brand. And I just, that was something that stuck with me. I mean, it is that same font that someone created in the 1800s and that same red, and that's how it is. Like you just don't mess with it. Like a freshly opened bottle of cola. Sarah's excitement for her work was bubbling up. 
As the sun set on her collegiate volleyball career, she needed to rebrand. And luckily, she was in the right place at the right time. But that's not to say that Sarah completely threw out her athletic background. She used her story to land her next job. And she used her marketing skills to help Coca-Cola bring their iconic products to more thirsty mouths. But her time with Coca-Cola wasn't nearly as refreshing as she thought it would be. I was a little bored. They started merging our area with St. Louis. We were most of the state of Illinois and they started merging and sending jobs away. And so there weren't really advancement opportunities for me there. And so I thought, well, I'm just going to take one marketing class and see if it's any fun. And I had the hardest instructor that I'd ever had and I loved it. And so uh, it really challenged me for the first time. And I think it was just different being in a career versus just a student. I really loved it. I loved learning for the first time. I felt like, I don't know how I got an undergraduate degree. I don't know what I learned there. I think I just played volleyball was it. But things started really clicking and I, I just loved the professor so much. I kept going. And so you enjoy the master's experience. How did you start looking at that Coke transition, the Pepsi Coke battle and, and looking really deep into the marketing? The formula for Coca-Cola is called Merchandise 7X, but tomorrow Coca-Cola Company will tell a thirsty world it's putting a smoother, sweeter taste into the most instantly recognizable bottle in the world. Yeah, well, one of the fun things I did during my master's is that I researched the new Coke fiasco, which is one of the biggest marketing lessons there ever was, which I love because marketing isn't something you can just learn. I mean, it's a science, but it's also an art. This has got to be the boldest consumer product move of any kind, of any stripe, since Eve started to hand out apples. So Pepsi was beating Coke. They went into secret, added a bunch more sugar to the Coke, I'm sure, right? Stirred it in and they were doing blind taste tests and people were picking this new sugary version of Coke in the blind taste test. I believe it was April 23rd, 1985. I don't know why that date sticks in my head, but they came out to the world with like, ta-da, new Coke. And people were insane, like at the water cooler. People were like, what? What do you mean new Coke? I, they, they just didn't want their Coke changed. I can't tell the difference between the new taste of Coke and the old taste of Pepsi. Why are you upset about it? My oldest daughter is 22. Her first word was Coke. Her second word was mommy. Yes, we could make the product better. If people are loving the product the way it is, then better isn't always better. And so that really stuck with me that we can't just always chase the perfect product. We have to be better at marketing it. And then my boss got promoted and a bunch of transition happened and they merged with St. Louis. And one day, 25 people came to work and they said, give us your company car keys. Here's a box. You no longer have a job. They had fired 25 people in one day. And so for me, I was like, okay, that's when that was a really big turning point for me that someday somebody just wants to clean house. And I'm one of 25 people who just gets canned. When I put my heart and soul into this company, that's when I realized, okay, this isn't what I want anymore. Did you start thinking about like your dad and his business and, and how maybe you could create that for yourself? Yeah, I did. And I remember thinking, I get now what my dad built and why that was so cool because it's his and he's in control of it and someone's just not gonna come in and fire him one day. Sarah's enthusiasm for working at a large company was fizzling out. Like cola that's been left out for a little too long, the allure of that crackling fizz is no longer there to disguise what is really just sugar water. Having seen 25 of her coworkers get canned, she knew she was merely a pawn in the corporate system. She could work herself dry for a company and never earn their loyalty. Suddenly, the office on the gas station lot and those two dirty filing cabinets seemed a lot more appealing. It may not have been sexy, but at least there was freedom. With this reflection, it was now Sarah's turn to be in control 
of her future. When I was a senior in college, I had taken an internship at the top ad agency in Memphis. I got to see all the different departments from media buying to the creative, the copywriting, and it was a great experience. And I just loved that atmosphere. So I wanted to go work at an ad agency. I started looking locally and they all wanted sales experience and I didn't sell at Coke. I was in the marketing department, but I thought it's not that hard, right? It's little Girl Scout cookies. A job came open 30 miles away at the newspaper. So I thought this is cool because I can sell newspaper advertising. I didn't have structure. Like I just had a, a small list. I had to go out there. So I remember every day, you know, I, I would walk in, I would have to cold call. And it was so horrible, but awesome at the same time, because I learned how to build a relationship with that gatekeeper, how to figure out where the owner was. And I was calling on a lot of small businesses, right? The ones that didn't have huge budgets, the ones who needed my help, but didn't know it. The ones who got beat up by sales reps. I remember going into a kitchen store and I had my little portfolio and, you know, clearly it was screaming like, I'm a young, new little salesperson. And the older woman came racing to George. She said, are you selling something? Get out right now. (laughs) I mean, literally so mean to me. And I thought, wow, again, and it was very hard. It was hard, but it's the best thing I ever did. As Sarah learned the nuances of sales, she realized that it's a team sport. Sales isn't just about selling a product or a service. At its core, It's about building a relationship and trust with another person. In any sport, team chemistry is a necessity, not a luxury. For any NBA fans out there, you know that the Los Angeles Clippers fell short of their championship aspirations this past season because they lack chemistry, accountability, and trust. And Sarah understood that building that trust, those interpersonal relationships, was the key to any sales pitch. So she applied that newfound knowledge into her ad agency. I was working at the ad agency and loving it. And we worked with a lot of photographers in town. We hired commercial photographers to do different shoots for our clients. And I was finishing my master's. And so I took photography. I was like, okay, here I am again. But we had to build a portfolio. And I realized I love photographing children. My husband's one of eight kids. And so we were around all these little kids. We would find his nieces and nephews and they were my subjects. And my whole semester was building this portfolio. I was working really hard at the ad agency. We worked long hours, especially when we were pitching a new client or we were doing something cool like that. And then I would shoot nights and weekends. I'd spend all Saturday in the dark room. It was was a super fun thing. And so when I was doing that, someone would say, oh my gosh, my friend saw the photos. Would you take their pictures? And so I'd, I'd be like, sure. So I'd add up like my film costs and some paper, add a couple bucks and I would do their photos. And I just kept, people kept referring me. So that's really, it just really started very organically. Did you realize that those referrals could be something more? I really didn't. Sarah never thought that her hobby could translate to a source of revenue. But that just goes to show you how passion can fuel an idea and bring it to a tangible business. I think what's most striking about Sarah's photography business is that it stemmed from a desire to nurture a family. Taking pictures of her nieces and nephews made her realize that those kids running around the house didn't have to just be a fantasy. It could soon be a reality. So she jumped into motherhood with open arms, only to face some unforeseen complications. The second I found out I was pregnant, it's just weird. You're a parent. We're like talking about college. We went in for just a regular checkup. And again, I I just went by myself because it was just a sort of, I thought just, you know, check the box. They go in, take your blood pressure, et cetera, et cetera. And the lady put the little stethoscope on my my belly, whatever. And she couldn't hear anything, but she's like, we're just going to hop in and do a quick sonogram. And I'm, you know, blabbering away about the baby's room, not picking up on anything she was saying. 
And she kept trying to tell me that there was no heartbeat and I wasn't listening. I just kept saying, it'll come back. And the room's purple and green. And I just kept going on. And eventually she got really quiet and she said, Sarah, and she like took my hand and said, there is no heartbeat. that moment it just everything starts spinning I wasn't I couldn't hear anything she said after that it was weird because you everybody gets that what to expect when you're expecting book but you never read the bad parts because you're like oh that's not going to happen to me and so it was really hard for us um just a lot of tears a lot of like questioning where do we go and I I just I'm not one to just sit around and like cried too much so I was like let's go again pregnant again super fast miscarriage and the doctors were like you know wait for a third I was like I'm not waiting for a third I'm just not like I'm not gonna go through this again it's emotional it's physical it's so hard and so um, I went to a specialist and had all these painful tests and uh, immediately got pregnant and uh, I'd gotten really sick with that first pregnancy uh, but you know it didn't make it very far. So same thing with this, just super sick, super quick, like vomiting all day. And I was so sick and I lost like 35 pounds. And this was in the first, you know, three months. And finally my mom called the doctor because I was so sick. She's like, you need to put her in the hospital. And they put me on IV. And I was like this blooming flower. I was like, oh my gosh, I feel so much better. Um, And then I got this severe toxemia and I guess almost died and they had to do an emergency C-section. It was crazy. Like everything in the book that says, you know, oh, half of a half of a percent of people get this. Don't worry about it. Well, I got it. The second I gave birth, the diabetes went away, the everything. But once I came out, two days later, I hadn't seen my babies. I was like, where are my babies? And from then on, I was like, you know, a hundred miles an hour again, because for the first time the whole year, I felt amazing. My mom kept saying, sleep, you need to sleep. I'm like, no. (laughs) I think the anguish these first two pregnancies caused made the twins' birth that much more rewarding. And it gave her a different level of gratitude for life itself. So as her children emerged into the foreground, Sarah began to compose a new portrait of her identity. I remember feeling a lot of sort of guilt that I was not pulling my weight at the ad agency. And so I felt like I was really letting them down. I'd had a job shadow day with a woman, came in for a day. A couple weeks later, she sent us this paper and we were like blown away. We're like, oh my gosh, she has her whole business plan. She was here a day. And it ended up that she was able to replace me. I was like, you guys, I know you need me. Like I just, I I came back part-time, but in my heart, I already knew I wanted to be home with my babies more. I started realizing, okay, how can I be that mom? Like my mom who was Martha Stewart and had a cute house and taught me to knit and cook and paint and we decorated our Christmas packages and being this really awesome hands-on mom but also being the entrepreneur like I just I just didn't want to live on my husband's income I had a legal pad a yellow legal pad I wish I would have saved it but people would call me and say oh my gosh so you took so-and-so's pictures we'd love for you to take pictures and I'd say oh I'm on bed rest And they'd say, oh, no hurry, just call after you have your twins. So I had this legal pad and the whole thing was full of people who wanted a session. And that's when I I thought, hey, if I could just serve these people and maybe grow a little bit and, you know, start charging some people, I could do this. I'm just going to go for this because I have this whole legal pad of, of people who like what I'm doing. Sarah was presented with two traditional paths. She could either choose the career-oriented businesswoman or a stay-at-home mom. But for her, conformity was not an option. We'll be right back after this break. 
So I've been drinking a lot of coffee lately, and I recently heard about this one coffee called Kopi Luwak. And it's pretty weird because, uh, well, you know what? I'll just let Jack Nicholson take it away. Kopi Luwak is the world's most expensive coffee. And it's expensive, well, because of a very unique process that has to do with a tree cat that eats eats the the beans, beans, digests them, and then defecate. Then people collect the stools and process them into coffee. So basically, it's cat poo coffee. And that got me a little worried. Like, have I inadvertently had this before? So I called up my local Starbucks and asked, is there poop in my coffee? Hi there, this is Starbucks. I'm PJ on Lincoln. Antonio speaking. I was reading online and I heard about this coffee called Kopi Luwak. And I'm, I'm worried if there's poop in, in the Starbucks coffee. Uh, no, there is not. That's a special type of coffee, and we do not sell, nor do we use that type of coffee. How do you know there's no poop in there? I, well, I, um, I can't 100% assure you that our coffee is poop-free. Wait, so, there's, so you're not sure? I cannot guarantee you 100%. Man, I wish determining if there was poop in your coffee was as simple as sharing an episode of Finding Founders with your friends. But unfortunately, I do not have control over the complete supply line, so I can't guarantee you 100% that there is no fecal matter in the coffee. Yeah, I guess poop coffee surveillance is harder than screenshotting finding founders and posting it to the social media for choice or just texting it to a friend. Unfortunately, it's not. Well, if you ever feel like you need to calm down or want to listen to some interesting, inspirational stories, you should check out Finding Founders. Okay, will do. Thank you for the advice. Thanks. So just remember, whether or not there's poop in your coffee, you should check out Finding Founders and make sure to share it with a friend. Now, back to the podcast. As her legal pad began to overflow with people requesting a studio session, the side alley began to look a lot more like a main street. Sarah didn't know where this road would lead her, but she knew it was worth a look. Our local art association bought this house and then they had all these decorators and artists each sort of redo a room. They charged people to come through it. And somebody reached out to me and said, hey, there's this little space in the attic. Would you consider making it sort of a dark room, like a a photography room? And I said, absolutely. It really put me on the map because it wasn't digital yet. There, There wasn't a ton of competition. All the photographers in my market were men, most of them. A lot of them were second generation, right? So their dad had done it and then they did it. And they're very traditional And here I was like doing giant close-ups of a baby's face and little hands and feet, very mom-like, right? I I had all these little nieces and nephews and little kids peeking out of things. At that same time, the photo lab where I was getting my stuff processed, he had a studio next door. It's in this old, like retro little strip mall. He's like, would you consider renting it? And he said, 300 bucks a month and you don't need to sign a contract. And so he gave me possession of it right away that summer. That was in 2001. I spent all summer like painting it, planted flowers. It was the ugliest space. Like it had bars on the windows. Didn't have a restroom. Like we had to go next door. I I decked it out with all these little five by sevens. Like I had clock hands and little five by sevens. Like I had no idea what I was doing. I was just, this is cute. This is cute. And uh, I went to my first convention in Chicago at the Professional Photographers of America had it. And I realized all the things I was doing wrong. Like you're not supposed to show little things. You're supposed to show big things. And I'm supposed to have a projector like for the sales part. Like I, I was not, I didn't know any of this stuff. And so I came back, I bought a projector. I took my prices time. I doubled them four times. So not even taking it times four, like I was so underpriced, created a price list, got everything situated, had a huge grand opening, invited everyone I knew. That was August 30th of 2001. I was pretty sure I was gonna lose all my clients because I wasn't giving them everything anymore. I was, instead of printing proofs and giving them, I was now shooting and I was scanning the negatives. We weren't even digital yet, but I was scanning the negatives and I was presenting them big on the wall so I could shoot more and help them narrow down. And it was scary because I had to tell people no and I had to be okay with them saying, well, I can't afford you anymore. 
But I also knew that I had to do it because this was my only way to be that mom. Otherwise I had to go get a job. And I was prepared to do that, but I was gonna do everything I could to make this work and figure it out. There was no internet, barely, right? There weren't resources back then. The little guy at the photo lab, you know, next door was nice. He'd throw me some tips here and there, but he didn't really know how to do it. So I was really just trial and error. It was just trial and error. And then one day I started marketing properly because I think before then I was embarrassed. Like I felt like I was a fraud. I didn't have a degree in photography. Like I'd taken those two classes, but I didn't know how to use the lights in the, the studio. Like I just, I felt like a fraud, which I think a lot of entrepreneurs do. But finally I was like, I'm going to make this work. I know how to market. So I created a marketing piece. I had my third baby and I did a birth announcement for her. So I traded with a designer friend who created this fourfold gorgeous mailing. It was like a box. It folded up and it had all these beautiful images and graphics. And then in the four corners of it, I did little promotional pieces on like a baby study product that I did and a new baby thing. And then I printed a couple thousand extra and I just started sending them out. What I did was I looked up new births in the paper and I would mail to them. About two weeks after I did the first mailing, I had a person come in, her name was Julie. And she said, oh my gosh, I got this mailing. I have to have all of these things. And she came in for her appointment. She's holding the piece. She's like, I want this and this and this. And it was like, when she left, it just, bam. I just, I didn't look back. I was like, okay, someone wanted to pay me $1,800. It changed everything. For a business to succeed, it needs to have a good product. But a good product is worth nothing if you can't convince people of its value. While others in the industry stuck to traditional prints and portraiture, Sarah brought a unique motherly perspective to her photographs. Despite this, she still had to work to quiet the voices in her head that told her, you're not worthy. You lack the traditional training. Imposter syndrome just never seemed to go away. But once Sarah gained sufficient self-assurance, she realized that marketing was the key to unlocking the lifestyle she had dreamed of. Marketing was my jam. That's what I did. That's what I loved. So I've always felt way more comfortable there. I started marketing my business and getting more Julie's and taking better care of people. The Professional Photographers of America had a program that you could work with their consultants to find out like how profitable you were. And they put a, did a benchmark analysis. So they'd spit out a report showing how you compared to best performing studios. I did that and they told me I was one of the most profitable in the US. And so the second that happened, everything blew up. I got my first employee in 2005 and I was doing about $235,000 in gross sales. People always think, oh, I'll just hire someone to do it, but you can't afford to hire someone to do it until you get to a certain point. So I think that's the hardest thing about entrepreneurship is that you've got to have all the skills. Usually as entrepreneurs, we're good starters, but we're not always good finishers. I had to do everything. I had to market. I had to sell. I had to price. I had to learn my numbers, which was really good because the answers are in the numbers. When it was like, can I afford to grow? Can I hire someone? Well, let's look at the numbers. So I started speaking at these national conferences. And back then people would just throw a bunch of their ideas on a CD and sell it like at the back of the room. So we watched what other people did and we started doing that, but I couldn't just do vanilla. So I have these metal tins made recipe tins because the joy of marketing was created as sort of a nod to the joy of cooking, right? The joy of cooking is this massive industry leader was sort of the respected Bible of the cooking space. And I love that because there are a thousand ways to make a really good chocolate cake. And I felt like with business, same thing. There's a lot of ways to create a business, right? There are recipes and they can be changed and tweaked. There's really a nod to the joy of cooking. So made this little recipe tin and every month I would send people a burned DVD with with some designs on it and an audio recording that I was editing myself and this little plastic recipe. And it was like $35 that they would pay. And I had people burning DVDs in their basement. Like it was kind of a crazy business model. 
And you were putting these at the back of the conventions you were going to? That started in February of 2008. So from 2005 to 2008, it was just one-offs, right? I would speak, we would sell some things, but people kept saying, I need more, I want more, I need more of you. And I was getting invited to speak at every state, like fly to New Hampshire for our 100 people. And I was like, okay, I'm not gonna do that. I have three babies at home. And for the pay, I could, I was now making really good money. I knew like well, I could make more in one session on a Wednesday morning than being gone for three days to speak at a state. And so that's when I realized, okay, I need a, a product that can be mailed out every month. It was called Cafe Joy. So they'd pay $35 a month and I would mail them physically a marketing idea. There was a lot of churn, you know, they'd do it for two months and then they'd run out of money or I know on $30, $39, but it would happen. So I'd add people as we're losing people and I'd, you know, both businesses were kind of doing this. I'd give my attention to the studio and then I'd lose a bunch of people. I'd be like, okay, I'll be right back. And then my studio would go down and I really had to have that conversation with myself about, do you want both businesses? I loved the teaching part and I didn't want to let that go, but I also loved the studio part because I was making good money and I was loving it. I didn't want to let that go. So that's when I made the decision, okay, if you're going to do this, you've got to have help. You just can't grow anymore. Like I was, I was working all the time and I was stuck. And so where did you source that help from? That's when I went back to that mini me, that rock star who replaced me when I was at the advertising agency. And I said, all right, we'd always said we wanted to work together. I grabbed her and we went to this friend's uh, bridal shower for the weekend and at the end she said yes so we partnered up and it's been crazy ever since so how did that start taking off it was very scary and we had no idea how we were going to make money. And Erin was at corporate. She was working at Travelocity's parent company, Sabre, and she was the chosen one, like just making very good money, a lot of opportunity. And so I felt a lot of pressure to not fail her. And I didn't have a plan. <laughs> I just knew we were both smart and we were hard workers and she flew in and we sat down and I had made these audio recordings that we sent out every month. I mean, that was paying the bills right then. So we had to sit and edit. She was in one room, I was in the other editing and she, we were at noon and she goes, dude, this is not worth, like neither of us should be editing audio. <laughs> we, do you remember Telesummits? A Telesummit was where it was, you call in from your phone and it was two days of programming. So one hour would be Alex Mendozian talking about, you know, five ways to get the right customer. Hey, it's Alex Mendozian here, and I'm glad you decided to watch this video. And then Brian Tracy would be talking about psychology of selling or whatever. Hello, I'm Brian Tracy, and today I want to talk. I called in. I got the schedule. I called in. It was terrible. Hung up, called back the next hour, and you can buy the recordings. And I kept waiting for something good enough to say, I want to buy these. And nothing was good. And so I hung up on all of them. And I remember telling Aaron, we should do this. We should do this. We have all these friends in the industry. We'll get them to each do an hour and we'll do a telesummit and we'll invite everybody and people can buy the recordings, but we're gonna make the content good. Because when we went to, it wasn't any good. They were like cheesy interviews, right? Of like, what's your favorite book? No one's gonna pay for that. Like, I don't care. I wanna give me something I can use. And so we did that and Aaron and I got together in July of 09 and in September, we had an event. We built our list to 12,000 people. We made like $190,000. Oh I know, we were like giddy, like what just happened here? We were paying an affiliate commission and for a couple of years we did these events three or four times a year. We'd get all these speakers, we'd do a, a you know, split on the back end of their products. One of our biggest hurdles, like it almost broke us. We were having this massive event called 101010. We had 10 speakers, they were just giving 10 tips for sales. It was on a website and we had so many people shoving into this little industry, you know, that was hosting our website that it kept crashing. No one could get in. 
whatever, wherever they were, they were all like, what the heck, Sarah Petty and all this. And we had to do like fast damage control because we spent months, like we were planning on a couple hundred, like at least a hundred thousand dollars to pay, you know, three months of little staff and, and we crashed it. And like, I remember being in tears and I told Aaron, I was like, we're, I'll eat macaroni and cheese before like we're breaking up. Like we're not. Cause I, again, that's, People always ask me, what are your fears or what keeps you up? It's like, I don't want to let people go. I have the best team and that's what the pressure I feel is to succeed so that I can keep providing this cool opportunity. Because I knew if she left, like we were never going to be back together again. And so we met at the Renaissance right by the airport and we worked for 36 straight hours looking at any possible way we could squeeze money out of this event. We ended up moving servers. We interviewed a web company down there. They moved it to a completely different server. We had the event on 10, 17, 10. I mean, we were follow up calling people to make sales like we were scraping and scrounging. We ended up really recovering, but it was really, it was a scary week. One of our core values now is tenacity. We have to have tenacity. We can't just go, oh, it didn't work. Like that's not an option for us. And we also did that. We lived that way for a couple years of big wins. And then we'd go down dark for like three months. Then we ended up really putting all our eggs in the, the monthly basket of we amped that program up. We called it the Worth Every Penny Marketing Program. We stopped mailing. It became online. A question of direction had now become a question of responsibility. Sarah knew when she decided to open her photography business that she had to keep her foot on the gas pedal. But with demand for her services skyrocketing, she couldn't keep up even if she floored it. So she had to take a close look at her priorities. The decision between her two businesses is reminiscent of the choice between her career and motherhood. Both were paths that she nurtured and both were paths that she wasn't willing to give up. So she scaled, finding ways to get her product out to more people without letting it eat into her schedule. Predictably, demand for Sarah's expertise and work continued to rise. So you put a little ebook on the website, Erin and I wrote, it was called the Boutique Experience. It was like 20 pages. And we described this, what we call boutique business model, where we take great care of clients and we, we serve them and we make custom work. And we were just, we had like nine or 10,000 people download it in, within the first couple months and they were freaking out. And so we realized, okay, we need to write a book, but we want to, we want to have a good book and we'd love to get on a bestseller list and have a legitimate business book. Like we're Seth Godin fans and Michael Gerber and all the, you know, hardback business books. We didn't want like a self-published paperback with bad design because that's not consistent with the boutique business model. And so having worked on that, through those times, what was the reception of the book? The book came out and our industry just got embraced it. It was amazing how many photographers went out and bought this book. And we had vendors who bought it in bulk some quantities and would send them out to their customers. And I think it was like Mother's Day that year that it hit the New York Times bestseller list. We were like jumping up and down because we you couldn't script that, like that we were in New York doing a book signing right when that happened. And it was at a Rama, a big camera shop there. And they were taking, they like had a camera and they're like taking pictures of us. So that was really, really, really special. It's just, I think over like 30,000 maybe have sold. Like it's just, it's been insane how exciting it's been just in the reception for me, when I get that letter from somebody or that email or that message on Instagram saying, oh my gosh, your book changed my life. And like, I'm able to stay home with my kids now or whatever. It just, it's so, it's worth all the work that it took. Sarah had found the perfect recipe for photography marketing. She became a mentor for a family of photographers around the world in a way that gave her freedom and the flexibility to care for her own family. Things were coming full circle. The same girl who felt like an imposter breaking into the photography world 
now had a New York Times bestseller teaching thousands of people to develop the confidence to recognize and capitalize on the value of their own products. Sarah was happy with her work, but she wasn't done quite yet. We actually bought the trademark for Joycast 10 years ago because we just, you know, after 10 years, you get the final. We just got the final on it. And we'd wanted, we started it, but it was, it didn't have a purpose. And so, you know how that goes. And I said, I'm not going to start it again until I know what the purpose is. And about two years ago, our business really morphed from these at home, study at home courses on marketing, selling, pricing to a full hands-on coaching program where now we hold photographers' hands as they do the work. And so as we're building this, we realize that it's a lot, right? Like it's it's a bigger investment when you get into a coaching program. And we realized that people need to know me and my views. And so that was really our way to get out there the things that I believe in and the things that I stand for so that people can get to know us before they just decide to jump into a program of ours. And COVID hit and everything got put on hold. And then mid-COVID, well, like three months later, we realized, okay, we need to get out there. People need a voice right now. They're struggling. They're panicking. They're freaking out. And especially working at the ad agency, watching businesses be reactive and go under. and, And the good ones just stayed focused on what they did best. And I wanted to be that voice to tell people like, guys, just stay focused. Because we always say, you know, or I believe we can always make more money, but we can't make more time. So while everybody's freaking out about COVID, stop listening to it and realize you just were given the gift of time to go learn, fix, do whatever you need to do to make your business ready. So when we can shoot again, you're ready to go and you're not in the corner rocking. Where are you now? My business is at the most fun place We're coaching photographers and we're getting so much success and they're in love with the community and we're having events. And we had our first event in February, right before COVID. If it had been a couple weeks later, it would have just crashed and we might've gone a different direction. So I really feel like it was, it was just reassurance that we're going the right way. So we're just, we're growing this, this community of photographers. And I didn't realize early in my career that I needed that. I do a lot of programs. I always have a mentor, but we did some wrong ones or we'd get in a group where like, these aren't our people. And when we got into our group a couple years ago, we're like, oh my gosh, these are our people. It's such an amazing feeling because you can't sit around and talk about revenue with your friends or big wins and big losses with your friends, you know, who aren't entrepreneurs because It just, it doesn't work that way. And so we're providing that, that we've been getting for these last many years now to our students. And it's so rewarding. We're just building a community of of these people who are getting so much confidence and energy from the community that I just see us hitting some major growth numbers in the next couple of years. What advice would you give your younger self and to those people that maybe haven't made that plunge or that transition, but are considering it. What advice would you give to to get them started? I would say find the person who's doing what you want to do and get a second or third job if you need to, to invest in in their training. And you may find out through that investment that you actually hate that. And that's a good use of your money because what most people do is they try to do it on their own. And when it doesn't go right, they they start building up this head trash of like, I'm not good enough. I'm not meant to do this. When in reality, you're just trying things with no direction. (laughs) Right. And I think for me, I got lucky because I'd watched my dad sort of bootstrap himself with uh, no money and just hard work. And I I think I've learned a lot of important lessons from him, but boy, if If I were starting today with all of the resources out there, no matter what industry, right? If you want to create a fit, you love working out and you'd like to have a little fitness business, who's doing it? Go learn from them, right? Don't learn the hard lessons yourself because we can always make more money. We can't make more time. As Sarah recalls her journey, I can't help but marvel at her sheer will to just make things work. 
to not compromise her path for anyone. During each phase of her life, Sarah has committed to at least one craft because she just truly loves it. Each path imparted her with lessons that she wouldn't forget. Volleyball taught her how to grind. The ad agency taught her the importance of trust. Motherhood has taught her what love, pain, and sacrifice truly are. Her journey as a mother is far from over, but I see her photography business as the culmination of all her story's subplots. Because just as staying committed is incredibly important, so is the ability to adapt. And Sarah has always been able to move purposefully between projects without losing momentum or her sense of self. She has woven this chapter of her life into her magnum opus, her greatest balancing act. And none of it would have happened if she let imposter syndrome stop her from rolling the dice. Sarah didn't have any certifications or the experience to be a professional photographer. She didn't even know if she had talent, but she knew that she had passion. And oftentimes that's enough to at least get started. All she needed to do was muster up a little courage and she was on her way. I feel like when you view it as the first steps, it doesn't sound so scary. So if you're feeling lost right now, once you finish this episode, dig deep for something that you truly care about. Take a deep breath and dive in. Because if you never try, you'll never know. See you next week. Thank you so much for listening. If you haven't already, make sure to subscribe, rate the podcast five stars, and share with a friend. If you have any questions or comments, DM us at Finding Founders Podcast on Instagram, LinkedIn, or Facebook. Finding Founders is produced and hosted by me, Samuel Donner. Our audio editing team lead is Adrian Tapia. Support from Joseph Cho, Matt Fernandez, Amir Gold, Spencer Khan, Sophia Donner, Shannon O'Halloran, Jess DeSena, Sebastian Gazada, Samuel Stenica, and Maura Lynch. Our writing team lead is Elizabeth Bowen with support from Avnish Sengupta, Prerika Chavla, Mitchell Lynn, Gemma Brandwolf, Lise Caldwell, Andrew Kekia, Jessica Gung, Zachary Loudermilk Batia, Kylie McCreary, Lauren Pomerantz, and Sharon Chen. Our outreach and research lead is Jessica Lynn with support from Sasha Ivanova, Marie Vaughn, Lisa Le, Alice Yao, Ankita Numbiar, Jamil Swayce, Sarah Hobson, Gary Zhang, and Melody Sopani. Our design and social media team lead is Annie Liu with support from Phoebe Sajor, Tiffany Day, Rick Liu, Ayla Erickson, Shruti Ramanand, Ling Hu, James Barton, Carla Ruvalcava, and Alana Donnelly. The video editing team is Eli Lawrence with support from Melanie Mack and Nina Maravich. To see more of what we're up to, subscribe to our newsletter at findingfounders.co. Thanks again for listening and see you next week.